Hello and welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I'm your host, Ming Canaday. Trips and Global on Wheels is focused on sharing resources and insights into disability advocacy, fitness and health, and accessible travel. Our mission is to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed advocates. Each week on our podcast, we interview someone with a disability or someone whose work advances the disability rights movement, both locally and internationally. In addition to the disability advocacy series you've been listening to, we've also launched a sub-series called Environmental Issues from a Disability Lens under the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. For years and years, people with disabilities and our advocates have urged for us, individuals with disabilities, to be included in environmental issue conversations. Therefore, I am expanding my podcast to include environmental issues so that we can start the journey of being included and also work towards a solution plan for saving our planet that works for everyone, including people with disabilities. We interview leaders from all over the globe who has done work in some capacity or another on environmental issues and ask them how they are including the needs of people with disabilities when mitigating the problems of climate change and how they think people with disabilities can be a part of the solution plan. If you want to learn about climate change, if you want to learn about how climate change is affecting people with disabilities, and if you want to hear what environmental leaders are doing to include diverse voices such as people with disabilities in the climate change conversation, then this sub-series is for you. Janelle Tomlinson, welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So we're joining you. I'm joining you from uh, Washington, D.C. And then, Jean, you want to introduce yourself, my co-host? Yeah, hi, Janelle. Uh, this is Jane. I'm calling in from Melbourne in Australia. For v- viewers who are not familiar with you, we're just going to do a quick intro. So if you don't mind, could you give us a brief introduction of yourself? Um, yeah, who may not be familiar with your climate change work or any other type of work that you would like to introduce? Okay, sure. So I'm a 28-year-old PhD candidate who I'm submitting soon, thank God. And my work surrounds community-based adaptation to climate change. So I work a lot with rural farmers, um, looking at some of the impacts they've been facing as a result of climate change, how they've been coping, and just generally if they're ready to kind of take on all of the anticipated changes um, that we expect. So in addition to my academic work, I'm also a Caribbean climate activist where I do a lot of work with young people, especially in rural Jamaica. So we've done school tours, we've had workshops, we've had underground activities, just to ensure that we engage them and that they're not left behind out of these climate change conversations. So that's on the local level and internationally, I've been to COP representing Jamaica. Um, so I was in Poland and I was in Madrid. I've been to the UN headquarters. And again, it's just in that capacity as you delegate youth climate activists to kind of represent the youth voice, not just in Jamaica, but across the Caribbean. So. Just to summarize, I'm what you'd like to consider as color activist. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That was wonderful. Jean? Yeah. Um, obviously, COVID's been a lot in the news and it's, it's sort of changing everything that it gets involved in. Um, could you give us maybe uh, just a quick rundown of uh, how it's affecting uh, you and your fellow Jamaicans? So Jamaica is an island, so we're completely surrounded by water. So as you can expect, sea level rise would be a major issue. 
that we have to think about, especially because we have so many fishers who depend on coastal resources for their livelihoods. But in addition to that, some of the changes that we've seen now particularly affect agriculture, and those include drought and intense kind of like storms and hurricanes. So what has happened is that we're seeing increasing drought, which means that food accessibility and availability is being affected. I and mean, so many of our, our rural population being um, engaged in farming, you can imagine how less yields would mean less money and less money trickle down into the household so less resources available. And even non-farmers, persons who don't necessarily rely directly on the environment are being affected because as regular householders, you could imagine that with less food and with scarcity, prices go up, which means persons have to spend more to get the same amount of food. We're seeing increased water lockoffs um, because so many of our farmers farm on hillsides and then there are issues with deforestation. Then we see soil erosion being a challenge. We see um, all of that soil conservation being a challenge. So the primary issues that we've been faced are particularly to drought, particularly to hurricanes. And as a result, that has effects on the household as well. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a devastating effect on, uh, on the island. In terms of uh, further impact that, mm -hmm. uh, that COVID-19 might have on the economy or people's livelihoods, um, has, that, has that changed anything in respect to climate change? Like, uh, I know in Melbourne, for instance, uh, because there's less traffic, then air, air pollution actually uh, got, um, actually improved the condition of the air. Right. But in other ways, it's, it's a lot more plastic now. So, yeah. um, have in Jamaica? So we have in fact seen an increase in plastic usage again because persons have had to stock up, see a lot more bottled water and stuff like that. So we have seen plastic increase. The thing about it is while we have seen reduced again emissions because as a, again um, reduced traffic and stuff, because we're not a major emitter, it still hasn't necessarily had that significant of an impact, I'd like to say, because we weren't emitting that much to begin with. So even though there has been a decline, I don't think it has been significant when you compare it to say the reductions that say China would have seen because they were such a huge industrialized country. And then with all the reductions, then they saw sort of a significant decline. But what we did see, in fact, was that because there was a lot of hoarding of food and stuff like that, a lot of vulnerable persons, as a result, didn't have access as they would have liked. So we did, in fact, see that. And also a lot of food wastage um, resulted um, uh, as a result of COVID-19 because a lot of farmers in rural Jamaica had to be... Um, I'd like to say that their mobility was reduced. So getting the food from where they were to persons who actually needed it was a challenge. So we saw lots of them ending up with food wastage, even though we were kind of in a mini drought. So what, yes, there were drought conditions. Yes, there were issues with food shortages and this was further impacted um, by COVID-19 again, because the persons who needed food the most weren't able to access it. So this is again with availability and access uh, resulted from that. Yeah, it's um, really hard to hear. Uh, I know that must be very frustrating for people on the front line doing all the work. It is, it is extremely frustrating. So I, I know you started your activism work at the age of 22, right? Um, yeah. What, what was the catalyst to that? What was something that you saw or did that, that just really frustrated you or, and add, you know, um, replaced frustrated with any other? 
<laughs> okay, so to be honest, I started that work when I was doing my MPhil. So what was happening was I was working again with rural farmers and I was recognizing that the whole issue of climate change was something that not many of the young people in rural Jamaica could speak necessarily about. So they could tell you that, oh, it's getting drier, it's getting hotter, we have less food as a result. But as it relates to some of the um, factors contributing and kind of the role that they had to play in that, I realized that that information was lacking and many of them thought that, oh, you know, it's something for the government to deal with. It's not something that I think I as a small young person can deal with. So I think because a lot of the efforts were being concentrated in the urban centers and in the urban cities and a lot of rural youth were being left out, and being a rural person myself, I saw the need to kind of change that, to kind of help to fill that gap and kind of get them more engaged in the conversation. So that's how I pretty much got involved with the whole rural youth and advocacy and just seeing the need for them to be better engaged and better involved in those conversations. Because to think about it, they are the ones whose livelihoods are so dependent on agriculture. Their parents rely on it. They go to school through money from agriculture, so they need to be more aware if they're the ones who are to continue um, ensuring that we are food secure and that we have access to food. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, maybe I'll have you elaborate on the rural and urban effects later on. Jean? Next, I want to uh, jump to more intersectional topics. As you know, um, our platform is mainly focused on people with disabilities and how to best right people with disabilities in uh, environmental issue conversations. And so right. I know that, you know, your work isn't directly related to people with disabilities, but as someone who's trying to include diverse voices, um, yeah. individuals with disabilities make up 15% uh, of the world's population, which is uh, around 1 billion people. And so with yeah. that said, um, have you thought about including youth with disabilities um, in the climate change activism movement? If yes, how have you tried to include them? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I was considering, especially one of the groups, so the UNESCO has a group here of clubs and societies, and a project that we were considering was going into some of the children's homes, the state-run children's homes, to kind of get them engaged in the conversations as well. And many of these homes do have children who are um, lesser able so while it's not something that we have necessarily embarked on, it is, it is a project that we are developing. It is something that we are considering and trying to find out some of the best mediums and some of the best ways how we can communicate it without it being too technical, with it being something that they can relate to and that they can um, contribute to. So yes, it is something that we have considered and we hope to um, push that forward, particularly as soon as COVID is over. Mm -hmm, great. And um, something that you've considered being uh, people with disabilities on your team and um, and really making that an active process. So that is something as well that could um, happen. And I remember at one point we had a training and we actually had two students that were wheelchair bound being a part of the activities. And to be honest, they were really engaged. They were really active. There were persons who I think were some of the more active persons, to be honest. So having a few of them, having persons who we think are lesser able, not necessarily because they um, 
aren't as mobile as we are, but they have a lot to contribute. And I have seen that in person. So I do think that having them and engaging them more is something that I need to especially ensure happens in the near future. Great, great. Uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to see that. I know you're young yes. and uh, <laughs> there's lots of work ahead. And so it'll be, it'll be really exciting to see the trajectory of your career and with our environment improve in the process too. Gene? Definitely. Yeah, um, actually that one relates to the next question, which is, uh, do you think that uh, climate change affects people with disabilities, particularly in your area? Um, so I do think persons with disabilities are even more vulnerable than groups who we already are considered to be vulnerable. So women and the youth are often the ones who are seen as all oh, the most vulnerable. But I can see persons with disabilities even being more vulnerable than these persons because, I mean, where mobility is concerned, where having access to particular resources are concerned, if an individual who we like to consider normal is already having challenges, then imagine someone who is already having underlying challenges and issues. So yes, I do see individuals who are disabled as being the most vulnerable um, to climate change and climate-related hazards. Yes. Um, so I, I think um, you, you were talking about sea level rises earlier, right? Mm -hmm. I think yes. what's um, been especially crucial is, uh, which we've covered with a few, I, I know you've seen the guests that have come on this series. And so we've talked about um, evacuation plans for yeah. people with disabilities who uh, may uh, take longer to evacuate and then making sure those fa facilities are accessible and that takes a lot of time as well. Mm -hmm. and so, As a long-term process, um, I just want to bring that up that all that requires a lot of planning. Um, and sometimes, you know, with sea level rises, rising, it, that kind of thing doesn't really give you an warn a warning, you know, it mm -hmm. just happens. And so, Next, I want to cover something that you are actually, you know, you know a lot about and are very passionate about. Um, so what, why is the voice of the youth important for the climate change movement or for combating um, climate change? So to be honest, I see it as pretty much you having to inherit something that you contributed minimally to. How I see climate change, it's pretty much young people having to be inheriting all the greenhouse gases, all the issues that have come with industrialization, issues with droughts, issues with sea level rise. And it's something that I would say that we have contributed minimally to, especially those of us living in rural communities who aren't as industrialized as these urban centers. So I think as young people, it's our responsibility because we're going to be inheriting this space. We're going to be inheriting all the problems that are coming with climate change. So I see that's our responsibility to do what we can and do it now because if not us, then who? Mm -hmm, exactly. And it is going to affect, you know, people in our generation and younger yep. generations more so than any other. All generations groups. to come after us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I was so excited about your work when I found out, you know, what you did yeah. and, um, you know, your, your mission of really trying to get the voice of the youth involved. We heard that you met uh, Greta Thunberg at the UN Youth Climate Summit. Mm -hmm. so can you just share maybe some things that you learned from her? So the summit to me was an interesting place because often the conferences we would have attended would have been more like 
being led by these technocrats and all these individuals, but then youth just being given a segment of the entire platform. So for me, the Youth Climate Summit was a space pretty much for the youth, by the youth, where we were given, I think, a larger sort of a platform to speak, to be engaged. And even though there were things that I wish had come out more, particularly Caribbean-related issues, I did see it as a useful step in the right direction. And I do hope that as we hope to um, do more work in climate change, particularly at the UN level, that we seek to engage more Caribbean youth, more indigenous youth in that space, to not just subsume their challenges on, let's say, a Latin America or a general youth problem, but to kind of hear these individual voices in the space. So it was a useful first step, and I hope that the lessons learned from it will help them to kind of uh, make it better in the future. The next question you've already covered a little bit, but I want you to elaborate mm -hmm. on it a little bit further in terms of how climate change affects people in the rural area areas versus urban areas and really um, mm -hmm. distinguish the differences. Mm -hmm. So for me, because persons in the rural areas rely so heavily on agriculture, I do think that they stand to be affected, particularly where their livelihoods are concerned. So a lot of them will plant, especially on hillsides, because a lot of the prime agricultural lands are designated for other activities, so for construction of buildings, or building homes. So as a result, they're left with more marginalized lands. And as a result, um, in clearing, a lot of them burn, a lot of them end up um, removing forested areas because that's how they're going to access the land to plant. And as a result, we see that when we have intense rains, when there are storms, there's a lot of erosion, all the soil gets washed down and they lose their crops with it. When there's a drought also, we see where they have less access to water and because water is already a challenge for so many of them, um, where they rely heavily on rainfall and rainfall storage, then during a drought with less access to water, it affects not only their crops, but it also affects um, activities in the home. As a result, again, cro less crops, less money, less um, resources available for taking care of the lives uh, and livelihoods of the persons who they reside with. But when you look at it in the urban centers, yes, a hurricane can in fact destroy infrastructure and it can in fact uh, limit individuals' mobility to and from work. However, where particular resources such as say, water are concerned, individuals in the urban areas have better access to pipes water than those in the rural areas. A lot of them also have um, access to better roads. So in the event of a disaster, if there's a roadblock, if there's erosion, then individuals in the rural areas have a greater challenge in being able to move from one place to another in comparison to say those in the urban centers. So these are some of the challenges how rural persons are disadvantaged. And while persons in the urban areas are at risk as well, I do think because being located in the city, it's easier for them to be able to say clear a road if there is a, a roadblock from erosion. It's easier for them to get access to piped water because they turn on their pipe and water is there. But for other persons in rural communities, they necessarily have to fetch water, say from a river, they have to fetch water from a communal pipe. So with the effect of a drought, with the effect of a storm, rural persons are at a greater disadvantage than those in urban areas. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, speaking generally for people yeah. who are, you know, able-bodied, don't have a disability. Yeah. Imagine the challenges of those with physical or psychological yeah. um, psychosocial uh, 
disabilities. I want to follow up with uh, a question, which is um, maybe I should have asked you in the beginning is, was there an, a specific person that, that maybe motivated you, to, motivated you or empowered you to do this kind of work, especially, you know, um, as a person who comes from Jamaica and in mm -hmm. a rural area? So to be honest, the person who kind of led me on this path is actually a Jamaican as well. So her name is Aisha Constable and her work was primarily with women and climate change. So she started off doing a lot of work with women and their particular challenges in the space. And she, through her work, sort of encouraged me to say, you know, the Caribbean voice is lacking. There are other issues that we face that aren't necessarily being heard. And I think that with your work with Farmers Now, and with the challenges that you see rural youth facing, I think that kind of gives you uh, a platform to be able to speak from their experiences, to speak from what you have noticed being around them. So yes, Aisha was the one who pretty much propelled me on this path um, towards activism and advocacy around youth. That's awesome. And it seems like, I think, uh, yeah, I, I saw that you guys have worked together on a, a few yeah. different projects. Yeah, we have, um, again, with Rural Idu, so after COP, we were both at COP, and following COP, um, the UNDP and the Climate Change Division here in Jamaica wanted to sort of continue the momentum surrounding COP and youth engagement. So they had asked us to organize some events. And immediately we thought that these events have to occur in rural communities. They have to occur um, engaging rural schools. So we planned two of them, one in the West, one in the East. And these brought together a host of high school students. We used art to help them to depict what they thought climate change to be. We used drama, we used song and poetry. So we had the technical component with all the different technocrats coming in, Climate Change 101. And then we started to use the rest of the day to have the youth have their voice and have their say and just engage with each other. So that was pretty useful. And they thought it useful as well, because for many of them, this was the first time they were started having that kind of interactive conversation about climate change and being able to share with their peers. So, those two events were especially successful. And I do hope we get to do something um, of that nature again with such a stakeholder support. Mm -hmm. And of course, COP stands for what? Conference of Parties. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jean. Yeah, great. Um, so we know that your most recent project was with uh, JAWIC, which yes. involves designing a sustainability initiative that will seek to build the of and empower female farmers across yeah. the mountain coffee region. So can you please tell us a little bit about the project and why it's important? Okay, so J-A-W-I-C actually means Jamaica and Women in Coffee. And we're the local chapter for the International Women's Coffee Alliance. So last year, we pretty much formalized our chapter. So we're the Jamaican body working with um, women in the Blue Mountains. And so our first step in sort of engaging those women was going into the communities to sort of understand what the dynamics between men and women were. And we were able to conduct a pilot study and the pilot study kind of highlighted that even though women aren't necessarily um, being barred, from being engaged in other activities, we do recognize that there are certain things that put them at a disadvantage. And the first is that 
many women have dual roles in the home. So in addition to being farmers, they're also responsible for taking care of children, chores, and doing other stuff that has to do with household maintenance, which means that they're limited in their ability to benefit from trainings, benefit from opportunities that men are uh, better able to access. So we recognize that one of the main um, issues as it relates to land and accessibility as well, a lot of the land that is um, in these communities is what we call family land. So say a grandparent would have had the land and passed it down to other family members. But then one of the challenges that we see is that often the male family members may be given preference in access to the land and cultivating on the land. So again, the issue of land access is an issue that some of these women have highlighted. Many of them, as a result, have not been able to um, get involved in any agriculture or coffee-related training. We do realize that where access to, say, financing and loans is concerned, they're exempt as well because of lack of, a of collateral. So we do see where these women are at a disadvantage, even though they have contributed so much to the coffee value chain. So we saw it necessary to engaging them, understanding the challenges, and then as sustainability lead, my role was to sort of design initiative, design training, and while the projects haven't necessarily been fully executed, we're still in the process of tailoring the different um, initiatives. The women have been on board, they are engaged, they want to be a part. So what we want to do is to first um, sort of provide opportunities for them to be empowered, to get some of these trainings, that they think are necessary, and then to um, execute their own projects in their communities with small grant funding. So that's just some of the stuff that we see as necessary and that we want to do for them. Well, you've got a lot going on in that project. It's, uh, um, yeah. Impressive. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of impressive, um, so I want to ask you, uh, we want to ask you a few questions about the future. Um, so what do you think the world will look like in 30 years if we don't act um, to change things, you know, for the better in, in the realm of climate change, um, really paint a picture for inaction? Because I, I don't know about in Jamaica, but in the U.S., you know, there are a lot of, um, due to various reasons, whether that be corporations, special mm -hmm. interests, or uh, political, uh, political factors, um, there are a lot of politicians that deny climate change. Um, yep. Despite the, you know, blaring facts. So, so what what will life look like in thirty years on planet Earth if we don't act? So, in three decades, I can imagine a lot more issues, particularly pandemics similar to COVID. So, I remember reading something, and it said that COVID nineteen is a dress rehearsal for climate change, and I do see where that makes a lot of sense because. There's so many similarities that I've seen in how people treat information, especially when it goes against so many of their beliefs. So in, in, in three decades, if nothing changes and if we continue with business as usual, then I can anticipate even more intense droughts and dry periods. I see a lot more issues related to food and who is able to access food and whether food is available, especially for some of the disabled and vulnerable persons who we have spoken of. Because when we look at what happened with the, the hoarding of food, um, what happened during COVID and how persons were panic buying, imagine if in 30 years we haven't started to take into consideration sustainable food systems and another issue was to arise with food. Again, persons with the most resources would be the ones who are able to stock up as much as they can. 
and leaving limited resources for persons who need it the most. So again, I see issues and more scares related to food. I see a lot more issues related to water and water accessibility because as it was, a lot of rural communities, even here in Jamaica, were having issues with access to water, even though um, hand washing was something being promoted through COVID. So I see a lot more diseases arising, particularly where hygiene and water and access to sanitary facilities arise. If again, we don't look into sustainable infrastructure that helps to reduce some of these challenges. I see more um, water related diseases. So Zika, Chick V and all those issues. Because again, if we do start having more sporadic rainfall, if we do start having more intense hurricanes, and I do see um, issues with, again, waterborne diseases emerging. And again, having limited healthcare facilities or limited access to healthcare, that again becomes a challenge. So I do see a host of different challenges intersecting related to water, related to food, related to health, particularly for vulnerable groups, particularly for people who already have underlying challenges with resource access. And to be honest, I think that's where we're headed if we don't do something quickly. Mm. Interesting. And so and what I want to touch on just one aspect of what you said. I know you covered a lot there. Um, in regards to food rationing and how much to buy, I feel like there's a mixed message there. On the one hand, it's buy, buy as much as you need, you know, to however long that that takes you to your next trip to the grocery store. But then on, on the other hand, don't buy too much. So, so how can people have done better? I think what should have happened was, and one of the things that I saw that was implemented here, but I think it's implemented late, was that each household was only allowed a particular amount of items. So you couldn't buy more than three, say, sanitizers. You couldn't get um, more than a certain amount of masks. And I think that sort of gives everybody an equal opportunity to be able to benefit than as having it free for all so you can buy as many as you need. So I think having limits on how many items you can purchase is something that probably would have proved useful from the beginning rather than later down because that would have given an equal possibility for everybody to benefit so that's one of the things that i think could have been useful another thing that i think happened here later on as well was that uh, the politicians and mps they went into more vulnerable spaces and they were helping to distribute um, items that they considered to be in need so they were again giving out masks giving out food giving out sanitary items. So I think where the government gets involved and helps to provide some of these necessary inputs to the persons who are least able to um, access them was something useful as well. And again, that came later on, but I do think it's something that was beneficial. So just the idea of limiting how many items someone could buy and then having um, officials and representatives assist with the distribution of items, especially in vulnerable spaces, I think that was something that is useful and something that should have been done earlier, but was good nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you for elaborating on that. Gene? Uh, yeah, speaking of uh, restrictions, um, COVID has also led to the lockdown of travel. And uh, for people like yourself who uh, maybe need to collaborate internationally with other organizations, um, with, with lockdown in place, how is that affecting your ability to organize future um, you know, talks or interactions with people who can help the conversation? Um, and do you think you'll be doing anything in the near future with uh, similar activists like uh, Greta Thunberg or others? 
So what has happened is that we've had to capitalize on virtual platforms. And I think they have been going well thus far. So while a face-to-face -face meeting does provide certain opportunities to be better able to, I guess, deliberate and to have certain discussions, we have had to move online and utilizing say, Zoom and Skype and other platforms. And I think they have been effective for the organization phase. Um, as it relates to execution of activities, again, webinars have kind of been the primary uh, mode of communication and so it's like getting information out there. And while I must say it was the best that we could have done, I still think that face-to-face -face interactions are most effective in terms of getting certain messages across. Um, as it relates to collaboration, so I did meet Greta in Poland, um, but as it relates to collaboration, we haven't necessarily thought out um, any sort of uh, collaborations per se. But I have been in dialogue with other international activists, um, particularly some in the ocean space, and we are sort of coming up with different initiatives and different ideas that we can execute hopefully post COVID. But for now, we've had to be relying on the virtual space and seeing what we can get done through this medium. Awesome, awesome. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been so fascinating learning about the situation in Jamaica and you being a youth uh, doing this kind of work. Um, and uh, so. For our last question, I know we probably didn't cover everything, not at all. So I want to give you an opportunity to uh, say or cover anything that we didn't think to ask. I'm sure there are a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. So just one of the things that I think I'd like to pinpoint is that so for many countries, and you rightly highlighted it, that a lot of political issues and there may be conflicts between what persons believe climate change to be and how to approach it. But one of the things I must say in Jamaica is that we have been one of those Caribbean countries who have embraced this whole idea of climate change, embraced this whole idea of being inclusive, so having women, having youth, having these groups who were often excluded from the conversation, now being there to kind of offer their voice and lend their solutions to the issue. So I must love the efforts. We have a division um, dedicated solely to climate change and it's being headed by the individuals who I think are making some of the right steps. And while there's a lot more work to be done, I do think that currently they are making um, strides. They are collaborating with other international and local partners in an effort just to ensure that individuals are aware and in ensuring that we try to get as much done um, given the time span that we have to, 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 to um, make change. So I must um, highlight their efforts. And I also would like to highlight the impact of a lot of civil society groups um, who are pushing for conservation, who are pushing for recycling, who are pushing for laws and policies that help to promote um, sustainable living and greening of the economy and stuff like that. And the UN has been doing a lot, a lot of work here, especially with youth. The UNDP, one of those partners who are at the forefront of work, forefront of change. So I just wanted to highlight that even though as young people we are doing what we can, we are receiving support um, from the government side, particularly with the climate change division. We are receiving support from UNDP and all these other stakeholders who are sort of just giving us that platform and helping where they can to push our efforts. Um, so I, I, didn't, I don't think I was able to mention partners, so I just wanted to uh, point that out.
Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. So, and we look forward to following up in the near future with all the amazing work you're going to be doing. And thank you so much for everything you've done so far. Um, that was a really impressive bio that you sent over. And um, yeah, thank you so much for your time today, Janelle. And, and thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy the conversation and being able to share because, you know, oftentimes the conversations are just concentrated within your space, among peers, maybe in the Caribbean, but being able to have other platforms where you can share as well, I think it's a useful opportunity. So thank you guys for reaching out as well and also for having me on the show. Of course, um, we believe that having as diverse of a voice, uh, a group as possible. I noticed that even during our podcast that a lot of people we were interviewing are, you know, white men, which, you know, a lot of white men are doing this kind of work. That's true. But there are also yeah. other people like yourself. In other um, spaces, yeah. Exactly, who are doing great work and Greta and a number of other people people so we're more aware of that and wanting to bring in the diverse voices and hopefully through your work um through our advocacy you'll be able to include more people with disabilities in the work that you'll be definitely doing in the near definitely. future and definitely thank you so much of course thank you Jean. did you have anything in closing for janelle uh not not specifically but i just want to um say you, it sounds like you're doing amazing work over there and uh, you know we don't get much insight into your particular area of the world and and mm -hmm. to, to talk about how much is happening over there um particularly with the youth and, and getting people involved at the local level is really inspiring so um yeah i just wanted to congratulate you on, on all that work and it sounds like you're getting results well, yes yeah, well thank you so much as well I only know what it's like in America And shutting doors, I don't think that's right Thanks for listening to another Trips in Global on Wheels podcast hour. Look for us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook where I post pictures of my travels, share videos of my fitness journey, and keep you updated on the latest wheelchair accessory must-haves. Tell others about our program. The more we can raise awareness about these issues, the stronger we can get as a community. At Trips and Global on Wheels, we aim to build a community of healthy, worldly and informed individuals with disabilities and disability advocates that means we want to hear from you our listeners send us an email at tgowpodcast at gmail.com let us know about your favorite destinations for accessible travel how do you stay fit to avoid chronic injuries what language do you prefer to describe your identity as someone with a disability we want to provide a platform for people to share and learn from each other. So send us your stories. If you have suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear on our podcast series, please leave them in the Contact Us section of our website or post them on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.